seven signs, the seven miraculous signs in the Gospel of John. We have seen so far the first six, and there are seven miracles that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John. And today, we are going to look in John chapter 11 at the seventh and final sign. John chapter 11, the seventh and final sign. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, it's page 922 on the Bibles provided, and the Pew Bibles provided, and it'll also be up on the screen. Sister Lisa, I think this pulpit mic is just a little hot. Can you turn it down just a little bit? I don't really need it, but uh, if Sister Lauren has to go into the nursery, she'll be able to hear me better with it. Uh, but as far as in here, pretty sure that everybody can hear me. Um, I don't know. I, I was blessed by our song service this morning. I hope you were too. I felt like Brother Moons was right on. Uh, that's such a well-constructed, uh, motivating song service. I hope that prepared your heart. I it's beautiful to hear Sister Karen on the piano. Appreciate Sister Mary Lou and Sister Carrie sing that special this morning. I'll tell you, uh, watching Sister Carrie sing that song, I think she might believe it. You know, I think she she might just be bound for that kingdom. You know, and oftentimes you stand up here, and uh, you know, sometimes when things get really desperate, I lead the music, and uh, we'll see you sing something like, uh, "I am so glad that Jesus loves me," and you look out there and you see. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Where do you want to go to lunch? Jesus loves me. <laughs> but I'll tell you, sometimes it's exciting to see, yes, 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 I am bound for that kingdom of the blessed and the free. And it's exciting. And as I thought about our passage this morning, I was so excited about this seventh sign. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels. They each tell the story of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels. They sin. Uh, S-Y-N, see together, see optic. They see together. They tell the same basic stories from different perspectives. But John, written much later, gives a unique view. John does not include a lot of the things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, but he gives some things they don't. And one thing he does is he leaves out a lot of the miracles that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell and only describes seven. And instead of calling them miracles, he calls them signs. We call their series Signs of Life. It's, they are not just things that are displays of raw power. Each one of these signs points to something about who Jesus is. So the first sign, the turning of water into wine, tells us Jesus is the one who makes a change. That just like he turned that filthy uh, bath water into wine, he can turn your heart into something new. He can fill you with the oil of gladness. He can, cha- he can make a change. The second one, The second miracle that was performed also in Cana uh, proved to us that, and I I guess I'm going to go through just just a little bit to make this point, uh, proved to us that he is the the master of, goodness gracious, (coughs) I'm sorry, I've been uh, messing with this cough for forever. (laughs) We saw the healing here of the nobleman's son. You remember, it showed that Jesus was the master over space. That the the nobleman's son was far away, but when Jesus said, your son lives, he lived. We saw then Jesus healing on the Sabbath day. And we saw Jesus is the master over time. That it doesn't matter when it is, he's Lord over all. We saw, as we uh, went further, we saw Jesus healing uh, Jesus as the provider. You remember he had five loaves and two fish and he fed 5,000 men and there were 12 baskets left over. We saw him as the provider. Then of course, most extreme in the next sign, we saw Jesus walking on the water. And as he walked on the water, he said, fear not, I am. 
They tried to make him king when he had fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, and he wouldn't allow himself to be made king like they wanted him to be king. But when the storm was raging, he came and walked on the water itself to show that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And now we come in John chapter 11 to the greatest miracle of all. I will go ahead and spoil for, I'm sorry, of course I, I skipped the sixth sign, the healing of the man born blind. Jesus came, he put the mud on his eyes, gave him new eyes, gave him sight. And we saw he is the light of the world. We saw he's the one that makes us see. He's the one that, if we believe, sends us out. It's the one that makes us see and sends us out. But John chapter 11 is a more extreme sign than any of that. As uh, John chapter 11 is one of the most famous stories in the Bible, although it's found only here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not mention it at all. And it is the resurrection of Lazarus, or the raising again of Lazarus. I guess resurrection is not what I mean to say. Because Lazarus did die again. But we see, in this story, we see Jesus as the master over life and death. And I'll tell you, whenever you sing, I'm bound for the kingdom, you are proclaiming that he is the master over life and death. I hope that all of you today can know that if you close your eyes and don't open them again, that you'll wake up in glory and that one day Jesus will raise you up. He will call out your name at the trumpet, the last trumpet, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet sound of God, the dead in Christ will rise first and we shall be changed. This mortal must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality, this corruption must put on incorruption, that there will be a change when Jesus calls us out. I hope that you know that today. I hope that you know for certain that if you were to die, that your future would be life, that if you were to die, you would still never die. And if you don't know that, I hope that before you leave today, you do. Because the Bible says you can know. There's, uh, there's no, I hope I go to heaven. First John, the letter that John wrote, he says, I write these things so that you may know you have eternal life. <clears throat> if you say, I hope I have eternal life, then I'm afraid that you don't. And, of course, we can say that same thing about his gospel, that he pointed these seven signs so that we can know who Jesus is. And John chapter 11, as this powerful, powerful story, tells us about Lazarus. I'm going to tell uh, Darren, I'm going to tell one on Darren now. Um, I've been here at this church for five years this month. Very excited to, to think about that. And when I first started, one of the, the first youth that we had when, uh, when I was hired as youth minister, it was a very easy job because we didn't have any youth to minister to. Um, and uh, Darren was one of our first. Sister Kathy brought Darren dropped him off, and uh, he came, and he just soaked it up. You all know he's going to Bible College to Texas Baptist Institute. Uh, next week, he's going to be moving up to Henderson. And so God took him from an unsaved family, uh, an unchurched family, and has now turned him into someone who says, God, show me what your will is. And we're so excited about that. And, you know, you say, well, if I invite this person to church, what difference is it going to make? Well, ask Sister Kathy what kind of difference it can make, you know. And so we're so excited to see the impact Darren's had on his whole family through this. Um, <clears throat> But Darren, uh, so when I first met him, was in the eighth grade. And the eighth grade is not the best time to meet somebody if you want to not, if you don't, if you, you don't want to meet somebody when you're in the eighth grade unless you want them to have some stories about you. And so in the eighth grade, Darren said that he wanted to name his uh, firstborn child Lazarus so that when his wife was in labor, he could stand at the foot of the bed and say, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> I think that he's adjusted since then um, because I tried to explain to him 
that uh, he's not going to find a wife that's going to go along with that little plan. Um, but this morning we come to the place that inspired Darren to have that story, the place where Jesus says, Lazarus, come John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. At this point, that hasn't happened yet. Mary has not yet washed the feet of Jesus with her hair, but it was such a well-known story that John tells you this is the same Mary. You remember John wrote his much later. And Jesus had said that wherever the gospel was preached, what Mary did would be proclaimed. And that was true. And so here, John's readers, even though they hadn't read his gospel yet, already know about that. So a major person they were familiar with's brother was sick. Therefore, his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. We're now at the end of Jesus' ministry. Um, at this point, you know, you, you look and we say, we're only in chapter 11. Well, as I've mentioned before, the last eight chapters of the Gospel of John take up a very brief period of time leading up to his death and his resurrection. It's, most of the Gospel is about that final triumphant act. And so at the end of Jesus' ministry, he makes a splash everywhere he goes. At the beginning, it was kind of lukewarm. Oh, look, Jesus' disciples are here at this wedding. But as it went on, it began to be divided more and more, where people were either praising and worshiping Jesus or trying to find a way to kill him. See, there's no middle ground with Jesus. If, if you think that you can sort of straddle the middle, you don't know who Jesus is yet. So as things go on, they, he has more and more enemies. You remember that when we saw the healing of the man born blind, the man born blind was excommunicated from the synagogue for refusing to say that Jesus had not healed him. By the time Lazarus is uh, raised from the dead, we're not going to actually get to see this today because it's found in the next chapter. But by the time Lazarus is raised from the dead, the Pharisees intend to kill Jesus and Lazarus to try to undermine it. So their hatred of him is bubbling and bubbling and bubbling up. And so again, people are divided into these two camps. So that means that wherever Jesus is, people know. People know Jesus is here. We know from uh, the previous chapter, Jesus is a two-day walk away from where Mary and Martha live. But at this point, he makes such a splash wherever he goes. They know where he is, and they can send a messenger there. They didn't call Andrew up onto the cell phone and say, Hey, Andrew, where are you? They, got, they heard word, oh, Jesus is 60 miles away from here. And so they sent a messenger to him. That's the kind of splash that he's making. That's the kind of impact that he makes. Now, this is free. This doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about today. But can you imagine if people that lived 60 miles away heard about our church and said, oh yeah, I heard Jesus is there. If Jesus made that kind of a splash here in, Brazport, in Bra the Brazosport area, people said, oh, Richwood, Texas, yeah, Jesus is really there. Did you hear what that church is doing? Uh, what, what an impact that would make if in our lives, if people that barely knew you, the one thing they knew about you was that Jesus is there. So Jesus here is here. He's 60 miles away. He's over and actually... Um, John chapter 11 kind of avoids saying where he is. He's at the place where Jesus was baptized. The reason that uh, it avoids it is because that was called Bethany on the Jordan, Bethany on the other side of Jordan, and this is Bethany. And so to kind of avoid confusion, he just, it just says he was at the place where John was baptizing. But in John chapter 1, it tells us that was at Bethany on the Jordan, which is, again, 60 miles away from Bethany. So 
they come and they send a messenger to Jesus. And his sister sent unto him, saying, verse 3, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Again, there's just so much here. But you all know, Lazarus does die. I'm not, I'm not spoiling the drama of it by telling you that Lazarus dies. But what Jesus says when he says this sickness is not unto death, he means death is not the last stop for Lazarus. You know, uh, many of you have been by gravesides of good godly people who've died. And you can say, this sickness is not unto death. Death is not where this train ends. Death is not where this stops. The purpose of this person's life is not to die. The purpose is for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby, and be raised again to lay their crowns at the feet of Jesus. See, this sickness is not unto death. Now, when his disciples hear that, they think he's saying Lazarus is not going to die. And that's the reason Jesus isn't going. Now, Mary lo- now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. I want you to think about what those two verses say side by side. Now, Jesus loved Mary, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. It does not say Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and even though he loved them, he waited two days where he was. It does not say that he loved them, but he let Lazarus die anyway. You see that word? When he heard, therefore, Jesus did not let Lazarus die even though he loved him. Jesus let Lazarus die because he loved him. Now, if I could get that one truth into our hearts, it would change the way you think about everything. Bad things happen to you and you say, oh man, God must be so angry with me. What if I told you that many of the bad things that happen to you, God sends your way because he loves you and he's going to turn it back to his glory? What if I told you that the people in your life that you think are the most frustrating and the most troublesome, God gave you those people as a gift to make you more like him? What if I told you that all the obstacles that you have in your life were not accidents. They were not God losing the war. They were your heavenly father as the king of kings controlling all things for his glory. What if I said, when Jesus heard that you had this problem, he allowed it to happen because he loved you. Up to and including death. You look at your loved ones and you say, oh, you know, They were so godly. They were so good. Why did Jesus let them die? He let them die because he loved them. There are two kinds of people that are Christians that, there are two two things that can happen when a Christian gets sick. One, Jesus can heal them from death. Or two, Jesus can heal them through death. One way or the other, they get better because he loves them. Jesus lets Lazarus die, not even though, but because he loves him. So Jesus waits two more days, still in the same place where he was. 
Then, after that, saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walketh in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. This is, uh, again, there's, there's so much in these passages. And as a, a pastor going through and trying to give you the whole counsel of God, one of the biggest challenges that I have is balancing those, this, these two competing goals. One, I want to tell you everything that's here. And two, I want to get out of John eventually. I can't, we, you know, we could spend the next, we've spent seven weeks on John. We're going to spend one more week on John next week, and then we're going to go back to Genesis to study the life of Joseph. Um, but I could have spent seven weeks on John chapter 11. So you've got to, you've got to hold this balance out. But this is too important for me to let you miss. They say to Jesus, they want to kill you. If you go there, they're going to kill you. And Jesus says, I've got 12 hours of light. If I go any longer than that, I'll walk in darkness. So I want you to imagine a person. Some people say, you know, I'm going to die when it's my time, and that's all that'll happen. Uh, And that's only half true. You can, by sin, extend your life past light into darkness. Let's say that you are a, uh, let's say say that there's a, a just war going on. It's World War II, the United States fighting against the Nazis. And you decide to dodge the draft and hide. You may extend your life longer than you had if you had done what you should have done, if you'd done the right thing. You may live longer than you would have if you'd done the right thing. But you'll be living that time in darkness, and you'll stumble because of it. You've got a pastor who knows that one of his church members is sick with something very contagious and very dangerous, and he says, well, I'm not going to go to them. He may extend his own life. Maybe he really was going to get sick and die. But that extended time will be spent in darkness, will be spent stumbling. That's what Jesus says here. He says, they say, Jesus, are you really going to go to Judea? You're going to die. And he says, I've got 12 hours of light to work in. And if I go into the darkness, if I go away from that light, then I will stumble. Now, of course, Jesus was never going to do that. So the light is the light of the world. He's the light. But by walking away from him, we walk in the darkness. And when we walk in the darkness, we stumble. (laughs) And so... Here, Jesus says, there's a certain kind of courage that says it's better to live less with God than to live more without God. Why do I mention that to you? I mention that to you because we are on the brink of a post-Christian culture in the United States. And if we get to what it was like in the first century, where people risk losing their livelihoods or their lives even, for standing up for what the scripture says, and you've got to make that choice. I'm telling you as plainly as I know how that if you extend your life by denying the name of Christ, you will walk in darkness and you will stumble. You may say, well, you know, I'll be able to do a lot more good if I cover this up, if I don't stand up for what's right. If you don't stand up for what's right, you will not do any good because you will walk in darkness. And that's true on every level. You say, well, I'll lose my job. I'll lose this friend. I'll do whatever if I stand up for what's right. And it may not even be explicitly the name of Jesus. It's what's right. But if you get outside of that, if you don't walk where you're supposed to be, you will stumble. I mentioned, uh, I think it was on Sunday night that I was talking to the pastor at First Baptist down the road, uh, Eric Nelson. And he was talking to, he was saying somebody had shaken his world. 
because they had asked about what his goals were for his children, and he had told them. And then he said the person he was talking to said, my goal for my children is to teach them to die well, to die for the faith. And he said his point was that if you teach your children to love God and to be good, they may still not reach that depth of saying, yes, I will lay all that I have down for what's right. But if you raise people up to do that, then everything else will fall into place. If you're willing to give your life up, then you'll give up whatever. So here's my question for you. And as a pastor, once he said that, as a pastor, I felt clearly that's my responsibility is to raise up all of you to die well. (laughs) That if the choice came between your life and the name of Christ, that you'd make that right call. It's such a strange time. Colleen was saying she took, you know, she takes the teenage girls out for a Bible study. Um, She was saying that none of them had heard of Columbine. Well, you start doing the math. Well, they weren't, they weren't born. You know, it wasn't not on their radar. But if you were in that situation, you say, well, you know, I'll be able to witness to a lot more people and be able to do a lot more good if I can keep myself alive. I'm telling you here on the authority of the words of Jesus. If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. Jesus says, I go to die, and I will do more good by dying at the appropriate time than I could by delaying now this act that will glorify God. So Jesus goes to Judea, and he heals Lazarus, even though he knows that will set the events into motion which will lead to his crucifixion. My question there is, do you love the glory of God more than your own life? All right, that was free. So he says in verse 11, these things saith he, and after that he saith unto them, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. We're not walking two miles to get you killed because Lazarus is taking a nap. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. That's one of the things, you know, you imagine the patience of Jesus. Um, Jesus has been walking around with his disciples for three years at this point. And he says things and they still don't get it. You know, you study through the Gospels and you see that whenever Jesus is talking about death, he always means the second death, eternal condemnation. When he talks about death like we think of death, he calls it sleep because it's just a blink. But three years in, he's trying to explain it to his disciples. And they're like, Lord, he's just going to wake up later. Why would we walk two days to go wake him up from a nap? Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Jesus is patient. He's like, no, he's, he's dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Jesus says, I'm glad that he's dead for your sake, so that you can believe. Now, that's important. That's very important. I want you to notice a couple things. One, people oftentimes, when they're talking about crying at a funeral, they say it's okay to cry because Jesus cried when Lazarus died. It is okay to cry, but not because Jesus cried when Lazarus died. It's appropriate for us to cry, not for the person that's died, but for us, because our life has been deeply affected by the loss of this person. We don't have anything to cry about for them. But I want you to notice, Jesus did not cry when Lazarus died. Jesus, as the almighty God, even though he's 60 miles away, says, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. That means when Jesus weeps later on in, chapter, in verse 35, he weeps for a different reason. Okay, we'll see what that is. But Jesus here, he says, 
he said he's dead, and I'm glad that he's dead for your sakes because your faith is more important than his physical life. So, the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let's go into him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You see the kind of misguided uh, faith the disciples had at this point. They loved Jesus. They had this passion for Jesus, but they didn't understand. They said, yes, I love him. I'm going to follow him wherever. Let's go with him so we can die too. It's a very misunderstanding that we see throughout John's gospel. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had laid in the grave four days already. Comes four days. um, the, The Jews believed that the fourth day was when corruption permanently set in. And so he comes up to him, and he's been in the ground four days. Now, I told you he waited two days to come, and it was a 60-mile walk. That's two days under good conditions, three days under bad conditions. What that means is that either way, Jesus waited until Lazarus was dead to leave because he wanted to make something crystal clear. Watch this next part. Now, then when Jesus came, he found that uh, he'd lain in the grave four days already. Now, Bethany was nine to Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. Bethany. Bethany's close to Jerusalem. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. You remember what we're going to see, what we would see if we continued to read the account, is Martha is the one that's always busy. Mary's the one that sits at Jesus' feet. And uh, Martha says, Jesus, make her help me. You remember. And Jesus says, she's chosen the good portion. It won't be taken away from her. Mary's kind of the emotional, passionate one. Martha is the down-to-business one. Um, we, when we went to do the, the painting thing, I showed a couple weeks ago that, that painting. Um, you know, Colleen and her mom are both, their, their paintings, I, I told them it looked like they had used a ruler to make sure that the boards were all the same width. Very... And they don't let anything like that kind of stuff slip past them. You know, the, everything that they do is done right, and it's done right the first time. It's going to be neat and orderly, and it's going to do this thing, and then this thing, and then this thing. Uh, and that, that's what Martha was like. Martha's methodical. Martha's intentional. Um, Mary is passionate, and so sometimes she misses out on important things. Now, that means that later on, when Martha's preparing the meal, Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and she makes the right decision. But because Martha is methodical, when Jesus comes, she goes to him. And Mary, because she's so emotional, she's like, oh, Jesus has abandoned us, I'm just going to wait here in the house. And so, we, you know, different personality types have different strengths and weaknesses. But we'll see Mary soon enough. Now, Martha here comes to Jesus. Then said Martha unto Jesus, verse 21, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever that will ask of God, God will give it thee. Here's what Martha says. And it's so right and so wrong at the same time. She says, Lord, if you'd just been here, you could have healed him because I believe you can do anything. It's too bad that you're too late for Lazarus. How do you limit God? You know, you come to God and you say, Lord... I believe that you can take care of any situation. It's just too bad that my finances have just gotten so far out of control that nothing can possibly help them now. (laughs) You say, Lord, I believe that you can heal people in answer to prayer. It's too bad this person's on their deathbed and it's all over. 
I'll tell you the, uh, an interesting little story. Uh, we, you know, you remember we sent $500 to Brother Barker, who's a missionary in Paraguay, because his brother, who's also a missionary in Paraguay, was on his deathbed in ICU uh, on the ventilator. We, allowed, we, we sent the money to help him live, uh, stay in the hotel in the city in Paraguay with his brother, where, where his brother was. I saw this week, I sent it out on our text alerts, if you get those. If you don't, uh, then I hope you'll look in the bulletin and get them. I sent out this week, uh, he's now breathing on his own, and uh, he was asking, this is great, he was asking his brother about a beagle that his brother had promised to get him when he was supposedly unconscious. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the brother's point was that dog lovers hear the names of dogs even when they're on death's door, you know? <laughs> so he said, he was so far gone, the doctor said, you know, you're just wasting your money <laughs> keeping him here. But now he's breathing on his own and talking and working again. So how often do we restrict God in our prayers? How often are we like Martha and we say, yes, Lord, you can do anything. It's too bad you didn't get here in time to do this. It's too bad you weren't here in time for Lazarus. You just imagine how it twists in Jesus' heart. Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know, I know that all the faithful people will rise again at the last day. She's so close, isn't she? You know, you look at Martha and you just want to nudge her. So to say, you're, you're right there on the edge. <laughs> but we don't have to push her over because Jesus pushes her over. Jesus said unto her, I am. Remember, we talked about that already. Jesus is de- the declaration when Moses came to the burning bush. God spoke to him, and Moses said, Who will I say sent me? And God said, Say, I am sent you, the self-existent one. And Jesus then comes along and he says things like, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Fear not. I am. He says, I am the one. I am the eternal self-existent one. And now he comes up and with this powerful statement says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. He says two things. He says, I am the resurrection. Because I am the resurrection, he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He says, I am the life. That means that whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. He said, if you've died, because I am the resurrection, you will rise again. If you're alive, because I am the life, you will never die. And you say, well, so much for that. Lazarus believed in Jesus and he died. And I want you to see something very important. What is death? If you are a Christian, you will never die. Because Jesus said, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If you believe in Jesus, you have everlasting life right now. If you were to die, that life did not last ever. You understand If you were to die, that life would not last ever. Stop. If you were to lose your salvation, your life would not last ever. But because if you have Jesus, from that moment, your life begins and never ends. You say, well, what about all this? Well, if I, you know, know, when you sneeze, your heart stops. The back pressure from the deep breath and everything pushes on your blood, and temporarily, your heart skips a beat. 
uh, because the, the, to keep your heart from overpressuring. Every, every time you sneeze, your heart slows down enough that it often skips a beat. Now, if I looked at you and I said, well, you just died. Your heart stopped. You'd say, don't be ridiculous. When you die, you say, don't be ridiculous because it just started right back up again. It didn't really stop. My heart stopped for one, missed one beat for the sneeze, and then as soon as the sneeze was over, it's back up again. Jesus says, when you die and they bury you, they all cry, you know, cover you up with dirt, buy an expensive rock and put it so they remember where you are. It is just as certain that you will live again as when your heart stops when you sneeze. It is just as certain that Jesus will raise you up again as it is that your heart will pick up again. So you never die. Your life, your spiritual life, you go from here to being with God, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. You close your eyes here, you open them there. We shall see Jesus just as he is. So Jesus says, your death is nothing. To us, death is the great end, isn't it? You know, it's the big, heavy door slammed shut. But to God, it's nothing at all. And one of the things babies learn pretty early on is when a baby's little bitty, when they're first born, you can hold something in front of them and hide it behind your back, and they don't know that it exists anymore, right? They don't understand object permanence. But very quickly, they develop object permanence. They know it's still there, even if I can't see it. See? What we need to learn as Christians is we need to get past the baby stage and get to the point where we understand people permanence. That just because I can't see you does not mean that you are not safely behind my father's back in the palm of his hands. So another important thing here, you want to know, people always want to know, why is it that only Christians can have eternal life? You know, why is it that all, all the other religions, why can't God just let everybody, you know, say, oh, well, you did your best. Here's what I want to say to you. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the resurrection. That means if you do not have Jesus, then you do not have eternal life because he is eternal life. He cannot give you happiness and life apart from himself because there is no such thing. He himself is life. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. There is eternal life only in Jesus because he is eternal life. You cannot have life apart from him because you cannot have life apart from life. One of the most important doctrinal things you can say. Then she asks him, he, he asks her, he says, Believest thou this? Hey, Mary, yes, you believe he'll rise again on the last day. You've got kind of this vague faith idea. I believe there's a God, but you need to make it more personal. What do you believe about me? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? And Mary and Martha cannot completely understand this. But she responds like this. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. She says, I don't understand all of what it means for you to be the resurrection and the life, but I do believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, that you came down into the world. And that is what she needed to know. 
And if you believe that about Jesus, you say, yes, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God that came into the world, then he is your resurrection and he is your life. Your resurrection and your life are as certain as he is. So, when she had so said, she went away and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, the Master has come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Martha sends for Mary. Martha sends and gets Mary. Mary comes to Jesus. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but it was in the place that Martha met with him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, she goeth up to the grave to weep there. So there's this whole group of people there to comfort Mary. And when they see Mary run out, they follow her. They say, oh, she's going to the grave. We need to go there and be with her. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she lay down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have they laid him? Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Why did Jesus cry? Jesus did not cry when Lazarus died. Jesus cried when he saw Mary and the Jews crying. Now, there's two possible reasons that he could have cried here, and I'm going to tell you both of them, and then I'm going to tell you which one I think is right. One is out of his compassion for them. He sees their broken heart, and that breaks his heart. And I believe that's right. But I don't think that's the primary reason. So I guess, they're, I, guess I believe they're both right. But here's the other reason. He sees their lack of faith. He sees Mary. He sees Martha's lack of faith. Why do I believe that's right? The only other time that Jesus cries in the Bible is when he looks over Jerusalem after they've rejected him, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how would I have gathered thee as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You know what breaks Jesus' heart? You know what makes Jesus cry? When you doubt him, when you don't trust him. And so Jesus there weeps. And the Jews said, behold, how we loved him. Because just like us, they don't get it. You know? and whenever it says the Jews said something in the New Testament, you can guess that's probably not well, the real reason. Behold, how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man, which had opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? Therefore, Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. What is it that makes Jesus groan in himself? What is it that makes him wept? the lack of their faith. It was a cave and a stone lay on it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. So I'm not going to roll that stone away. They didn't have embalming, or they didn't practice embalming in ancient Israel like we do. They if you've been to Israel, it's hot. Passover time, April, that's the beginning of the end of spring, beginning of summer, it's hot. And so he says, this, they, they would bury the body immediately and cover up the stone and allow the decay to happen. They said, it's, it stinks in there. Jesus saith unto her, said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldst believe, thou should see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. 
And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. He prays and says, Lord, thank you for doing this. I know you always hear me, but I thank you now so that people will see what's going on. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto him, Loose him and let him go. There's a lot we can talk about here, but we're out of time. <laughs> I was, uh, I said it's been five years this month. Uh, one of the first sermons that I preached here was on this passage. And I looked at it from the perspective of once we're saved, God calls us forth. We come out and we're genuinely alive, but we're bound by the old things of sin, by the costume of death. And we need, and he said, help them, take, help him take this off. And we need other people. We need the church to help us remove these grave clothes and help us to live freely. Looked at it from that perspective, and that's very important. But here today, we look at what does this sign mean? What does this sign mean when we think of Jesus here raising up Lazarus? What does it point to? Martha had said, you'll be raised up in the last day. This is just a preview of that. (laughs) The same God who called Lazarus out of the grave will call all of his people out of the grave. That we shall live again. We'll live spiritually in heaven with him immediately. And on the last day, I'll have a new body. Praise the Lord, I'll have a new life. There's a song um, that is, well, it's uh, called Four Days Late. Yep. Isn't it great when God is late? When he's four days late, he's still on time. (laughs) You just see the kind of God we would have, you want to see this last sign, the final climaxing sign. It means when he is four days late and you say, I'm too far gone, I've done too much, I'm too far, I could never get this situation straight, I could never turn back from this sin, I could never turn back to God, there's no hope. When he's four days late, he's still on time. You say, oh, this person that I loved is dead. What purpose does my life have anymore when he's four days late? He's still on time. When you look at your finances or your job situation or whatever, and you say, oh, this is just terrible, but it's too late for me to make a change. When he's four days late, he's still on time. When you say, in this sin that I'm in, I've just gone too far down this path. It's all, all those doors are closed. There's no hope. I can't possibly change it now. I'm sealed. I've made the bed. Now I've got to lie in it. When he's four days late, he's still on time. It is never too late to follow the Lord Jesus. So with apologies now to the people that were here two Wednesday nights ago, because I used this illustration then, and I said, oh, I'm upset about using this because it's so good. I want to save it. Couldn't help myself. W.A. Criswell, a uh, famous pastor, was sitting on a plane next to an eminent theologian. He sat next to this theologian, and they were riding on the plane, and he said to him at one point, what's the greatest theological truth you've ever heard? And the theologian said, you don't know this. They didn't publicize it, but a few years ago, my son died. We uh, took him to the doctor, and they said, there's nothing we can do. He's beyond the reach of modern medicine. 
And so we took him home on hospice care so he could go to heaven from home. And he said he sat with his son next to his bed as he got weaker and weaker. And it was a, it was a brain infection. And so it was taking away his sight. This is a true story. And he said he sat next to his son's bed, and his son said, Daddy, it's getting dark, isn't it? He said, yes, son, it is getting dark. He said, I guess I'm getting really tired, Daddy. But that's okay, you can rest. You can go to sleep. He said, okay, Daddy, I am really tired. Okay, you can go to sleep. And he said, okay, I love you, Daddy. I love you too, son. And then the theologian said, his young son told him the most profound theological statement that he had ever heard. He said, okay, daddy, I'll see you in the morning. You know, when we say goodbye to people on this side, we say goodbye to people, it's not over. Death is not the end. We'll see them in the morning. If you've placed your trust in Jesus, if you have Jesus, you have the resurrection life. Your loved ones that you've sent on before, you do not have to mourn like those who have no hope because they have life if they have Jesus. We stand this morning. We're going to have a hymn of invitation. Give you a chance to respond. And here's what I want you to do. If you don't know that you have life, if you don't know that you have Jesus, I want to make sure that you can meet me this morning. If today you're willing to say, yes, Lord, I know that I've sinned, I know I deserve death, but I believe you died for me, then he will forgive you and heal you right now. And your eternal life will begin. Maybe you've gone down one path so far and you think there's no hope, it's too late for me to turn back. Isn't it great? When our God is late, four days late, he's still on time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this day. Thank you for the blessings you give us and all the people that are here. And I just ask now that you would move your spirit in a mighty way. That people that are struggling and grieving, that you would comfort their hearts by the hope of eternal life, that those that don't know they have eternal life, that you would make this the time, that they would accept it. That those who have, feel like they've gone too far, they feel like they've sinned too much, they've gotten too far from you, it's too late for them to come back, that this would be the day that you would bring them back. That they would realize that it's not too late, that if they will just trust you, that you can do all things. I ask now for your blessings, now that you'd watch over us, that you would use this time, that you would cause people to respond for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray.